This is special coverage from North State Public Radio. I'm Matt Fiddler. Sunday marked two years since the campfire tore through Paradise, Concal, Megalia, and the surrounding communities, demolishing almost everything in its path. It remains the deadliest fire in California history. Tonight, we look back at some of the lessons learned out of that enormous tragedy. We'll hear from experts on fire behavior and affordable housing. And Butte County Sheriff Corey Honey talks about how his department has used its experience in the campfire to inform how it's handled emergencies since then. And Kim Weir of Up the Road shares some stories from the ridge. That's all ahead. It's been two years of heart-wrenching loss and two years of hope. It's been two years of debris removal and two years of rebuilding. It's also now two years of hindsight. So tonight, we're going to talk about what the campfire taught us and how those lessons are affecting our communities today. 19,000 structures burned as the fire ripped through more than 150,000 acres on November 8, 2018. The populations of three towns fled the inferno, and many never saw their homes again. The rebuilding process has been slow, and affordable housing is still a unicorn throughout the burn scar. NSPR's Tess Viglin spoke with Shauna O'Shaughnessy, president and CEO of the Community Housing Improvement Program, about the continuing lack of places to live. Shauna, remind us what the housing situation was in Paradise and even throughout Butte County prior to the campfire? So prior to the campfire, we were in a situation of very low vacancy. Um, We weren't in a full-blown crisis, but we were starting to see increased percentages of homelessness in our community and increasing prices and um, less availability. In the town of Paradise and the surrounding communities that were impacted by the campfire, they were um, more affordable because the housing stock was older. The community had been there for a long time. So there was there was a lot of what is sometimes called naturally occurring affordable housing. And what did the fire do to that affordable housing? It wiped it out. It upended the entire region in terms of housing that was available and what people could find. So there just wasn't anywhere for people to go. And um, homeownership prices skyrocketed. We had zero vacancies. And a lot of people left, even though they wanted to stay here. This was their community. This is where they worked, where they went to school, where they'd grown up, where their extended family lived. And now, two years later, we still have several thousand people who are not stabilized. They want to stay here. They're trying, they're holding on, they're waiting to rebuild, they're waiting for the PGD settlement, they're waiting for, you know, federal grants to come down. And it's just really changed our community. So we're marking uh, the second anniversary of the fire. Um, What have been some of the roadblocks to getting that housing up and running for a population that's in desperate need of it. So focusing on the town of Paradise, the town has, you know, was able to do some 
really important planning and visioning for what they wanted to look like. And there are grant programs where people can have their permits waived, there are septic grants for people. And actually those are also available um, throughout the, the burn scar. But there are significant barriers that people are facing. So there's kind of two populations that are coming back. People who have the resources, they had adequate insurance, And then we have some really intense work being done by the Campfire Collaborative's Unmet Needs Roundtable, and they're able to help some of the most vulnerable people move into permanent housing back up on the ridge. So people who'd had very little or no insurance. Um, In terms of affordability, our property, Paradise Community Village, which was a uh, 36-unit low-income housing tax credit Um, apartment complex, which burned, we have started rebuilding and we're looking to have that completed by the end of next year. And the other affordable housing um, multifamily projects haven't started yet. They haven't been able to move forward yet. There's just been so many barriers from the debris removal to the trees to the questions we had early on about water, which have been resolved. All of these have been resolved, but then surveys that people have to do. And then the escalating cost of construction. Lumber is skyrocketing. Appliances are skyrocketing. Manufactured housing, which was seen as an affordable solution, is pretty expensive now. Shauna, what, if any, lessons do you think housing advocates and authorities have learned or at least should have learned uh, in the wake of the campfire? There are many lessons. And I think the lesson that I'm going to choose to talk about is affordable housing advocates and some government agencies have been talking about the affordable housing crisis we have had across California that we've just been digging ourselves deeper and deeper into this hole. There's not enough housing at, you know, multiple levels of the market, you know, for, you know, from homelessness to to market rate, right? We don't have enough housing. And so we were already in this hole and then you have a disaster like the campfire and it, it becomes almost impossible to dig out of that hole. And so what I urge people is that we we can't ignore the need for um, affordable housing. We can't kick that can down the road. We need to work very diligently all the time to make sure that there's an adequate supply of housing for our people. And I worry as, you know, we have worse disasters and more frequent disasters that we're just going to have more people push into homelessness or precarious situations. And and it doesn't have to be that way. We can be intentional about the choices we make and the housing that we provide to our people. That was Shauna O'Shaughnessy of the Community Housing Improvement Program speaking with NSPR's Tess Figland. For Butte County Sheriff and Coroner Corey Honey, the campfire, while catastrophic, was several disasters ago. But his office has made a point of taking the lessons learned from November of 2018 and applying them throughout the last two years. He spoke with NSBR's Andre Bayek. On this second anniversary of the campfire, how do you choose to reflect on that tragic day? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's it's only been two years, but in some respects, it seems like it has been so long ago. 
so much has transpired uh, both within Butte County and then you know throughout the country uh, in the last year uh, that it does seem like it's a bit distant. Uh, I guess uh, I've been occupied this year, of course, with uh, you know our response to COVID-19 and then most recently the North Complex or otherwise known as the Bear Fire. And uh, in all candor, until you called last week, the approaching anniversary was sneaking up on me. You referenced the Bear Fire. There is a new date etched into Butte County's history, September 8, 2020. You were in a helicopter that afternoon, looking down on the flames. What do you remember thinking on that flight as evacuations were already underway? So um, as that emergency was developing, uh, one of the problems was really getting an understanding of where the fire was, which direction it was going. I was searching for a better understanding, better situational awareness, which is what prompted me to uh, have my pilot uh, fly us into the area. And certainly as we were going there, I was thinking, I can't believe we're in this again. I can't believe that this has happened again in our community. There we were again, you know, looking down, you know, the barrel of another rapidly moving, very uh, destructive fire. And so with that in mind, um, I knew that the machine that we have put into place to deal with alert and warning uh, was up and running and ramping up. And uh, I was glad that we had got that machine up and running. But I knew that um, this was another one of those circumstances that was certainly going to test uh, all of our resources and test our community. A third major evacuation since 2017. In what ways did your office's experience responding to the campfire and yeah. the protocols put into place since then yeah. help inform your response to the bear fire? One of the things that you certainly hope that you can do every time you go through a very difficult or traumatic situation is uh, glean lessons learned and implement uh, those lessons to, over, to improve an overall response. Uh, and I would go back to the spillway incident where, you know, we looked at that evacuation we did some things within the department that I think um, certainly helped us later on with a campfire and then certainly have paid dividends going forward and helped us with the most recent fire. Uh, one of those was the development of an incident management team internally within the sheriff's office and training all of those individuals to work uh, in that regard. The campfire, from that, uh, there was a whole host of additional processes that we put into place uh, to enhance our ability to provide alert and warning. Um, in addition to the incident management team, we created an alert and warning team. During the campfire, we had a limited number of people who were uh, trained to access, for example, code red and put the message out. And what we found is that in those uh, major incidents that are rapidly developing, uh, you quickly run out of resources. And so we expanded our team. Uh, that helped a great deal. In addition to that, uh, we worked on putting together canned messages based on likely scenarios that we could pull from, uh, modify quickly for the circumstance at hand, and then put that information out without having to reinvent the language every single time. Uh, we've also added Spanish and Hmong to the uh, languages that we message in. We have adopted a high-low European-style siren that has been uh, installed on all of our vehicles so that when uh, deputies go into areas that need to be evacuated, we can utilize that distinctive sounding siren to alert people that there's an issue 
that's going to require an evacuation. Uh, what I've learned, uh, and I, I learned this in the spillway and it was reinforced in the, in the campfire and then tragically again in the bear fire, is that there is no way to guarantee 100% saturation of your message. And then sadly beyond that, even if they know that there is a threat coming, there are people who won't heed the warning and they will uh, choose to stay behind for whatever reason. Uh, and unfortunately, in the case of 16 individuals during the Bear Fire, a number of them chose to stay behind even though they were aware of the danger and that uh, tragically resulted in the loss of their lives. Regarding the work that, you, that you've listed and that you've done yeah. at your office to respond to disasters yeah. like the Bear Fire, when you take a, a maybe a bird's eye view, how do you believe those that work has played out? So um, I, I do think that that has been important work. Um, the experience that we have um, literally has been born through, you know, uh, trials of fire, right? I think that when I look at how the information was coming to us from the U.S. Forest Service with regard to the Bear Fire and the timing of that information, um, had we not had in place the machine, if you will, that we put in place to, to, to um, coordinate uh, evacuations, alert and warning, I'm concerned that there would have been um, more loss of life. And so um, I don't ever want to downplay or uh, the fact that, that 16 people perished, or that's a tragic situation. But I also look at these situations, not only um, what happened, but with the experience I have, what could have happened and uh, I'm glad that we had in place the mechanisms and processes that we do. Is there anything else on your mind as we observe this second anniversary of the campfire that you'd like listeners to know? I hope and pray for a break for Butte County. I feel like we've been through so much here, um, but we can't rely on hope that we're gonna get a break, right? Uh, so I think that we need to continue to be prepared, uh, not only in terms of um, paying attention to what's going on and, and monitoring the various platforms that we send messages out on, um, but also having a plan in place to evacuate uh, if you need to. The time to plan that evacuation is not when you get the warning. It's not when you get the order. It's well before that. What we here in Butte County have experienced shows everybody that um, it's important to stay prepared. I recognize that that takes an emotional toll on everybody. Uh, that's certainly one of the things that I'm uh, sensitive to, but I don't know of another way to deal with this particular circumstance until, until things change, and I don't know when that's going to happen. That was Butte County Sheriff Corey Honey speaking with NSBR's Andre Bayek. Coming up, what the fire taught us about fire itself and how to prevent more calamities in the future. This is special coverage from the second anniversary of the campfire from North State Public Radio.
This is special coverage of the second anniversary of the campfire from North State Public Radio. I'm Matt Fiddler. At one point, the morning of November 8th, 2018, fire was consuming a football field's worth of land per second. Per second. The speed and heat and size of the campfire boggled the minds of even the most seasoned fire watchers and upended conventional wisdom about just how bad forest fires could be. I spoke with Don Hankins, a pyrogeographer at Chico State, about what the fire taught experts and whether he thought the ridge could ever experience another fire of similar devastation. If we don't make change, I do see that happening, and I do see that happening in the short term. And what, what I mean by short term is probably within a 10-year time period or roughly a 10-year time period, we would expect conditions to, to have a wind event and an ignition under that wind event that could create a fire that moves as fast, um, although maybe not as ecologically uh, impactful, um, but definitely something that could move that fast, particularly through grass and brush-dominated fuels that would be regenerating within that landscape. You said if there's not change, so what kind of change are you talking about? So the kind of change that I'm that I'm thinking about is that if we start to apply different stewardship within that landscape, you know, my biggest thing that I like to see in terms of stewardship is the use of fire. So if we think about burning in certain places based on, you know, prescribed burning and or cultural burning within the landscape, we can change the dynamics of that system such that fire behavior is then modified. And so while fire will still be part of that system, um, we can change the outcome of what that fire might be. So maybe rather than having a fast moving fire that, that sweeps over a vast area with long distance spotting, so ignitions several miles ahead of the fire, we can change that system so that it spreads through patches of vegetation, but the spotting distance has changed and the, the intensity of that fire and so forth is greatly minimized. Um, we're never going to get rid of fire. So we just have to basically learn to use it as a tool and to embrace it as part of the landscape we live in. Has there been an analysis of what kinds of lands burnt more severely during this fire and why, and maybe any lessons learned from that? Yeah, there has been a little bit of analysis that's been done. I, although I haven't seen anything in terms of like peer reviewed documents or anything like that on this, but one of the take homes that's a lot of the um, private timber lands that, that are, you know, say had been clear cut and then replanted with trees didn't fare too well. But then I also think of a lot of our lands in general, particularly the areas that hadn't had fire in them, were pretty dense. And so there's different stewardship that has taken place across the landscape. And there's some good case studies, I think, that came out of where like shaded fuel breaks and fuel reduction projects had taken place and how those those held up against the campfire during different stages of, you know, days of progression and so forth. So you could take what happened in the footprint of the campfire and apply it to other, you know, landscapes and think about, okay, what's maybe the best canopy closure that we should be looking at in a forested environment? What are the number of trees per acre? Those are the kind of things that we can then apply from what survived the campfire to then think about where can we apply this elsewhere so that those places under similar conditions wouldn't burn. 
What about on the larger landscape area? Because we have really millions of acres in the state that need to be maintained. And from what I understand, maintaining this land is very expensive, up to $2,000 per acre is the number I've heard thrown around. So ideally, what would you like done to our, you know, larger landscape level forested land uh, to help avoid these catastrophic fires that obviously, you know, campfire was just, just one. Right, right. Well, one, I, I just think about the cost per acre. Cost per acre on a burn, if we're thinking about doing like fuel reduction, thinning trees, re- reducing underbrush and all of that sort of thing, the cost combined on that can can get upwards of, you know, five grand or more per acre. That's a big chunk of change. And so, you know, how much money do we have to throw at these kind of projects? And this is where the realist in me starts to kick in and say, well, maybe we need to be thinking about using fire as the first entry, you know, and, and I know a lot of people may be cringe to think about that. But at certain times of the year, there's a benefit of being able to run fire through even in the understory of, you know, with dense brush, you can actually use the fire to reduce some of that brush and then come back in and do a reentry burn. And the cost of, uh, of doing that treatment per acre really starts to drop back down. And thinking about the campfire, obviously, you know, not a natural source of ignition, but the work's been done, right? The fire has reduced the fuel load. And while there's a new fuel load that's there because of dead trees, you know, within the landscape, we can help to maintain that fuel load with fire to not have the same outcomes that, uh, that might've come under a wind event or something like that. Speaking of costs, how much money do these fires cost all of us, you know, insurance companies, and now of course the cost of lives, the cost of fire fighting, maybe the cliche of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It could be relevant here. I think your metrics on that are right on. And and I don't have a dollar figure for you for what that might be. I don't know what the exact losses, particularly within the state of California or any of the fires within the West coast have been in this, in this year, like 2020. But I do know based off of reports from the fires that, that took place in Australia in 2020 and, and also the tail end of 2019, that they were looking at $150 billion of losses, I believe. So let's just start with that number, $150 billion. You know, if we took half of that, if we took a tenth of it, like how much could we actually achieve on the ground? And there's currently this proposal within the U.S. Senate to look at funding prescribed fire. And they're looking at million commitment, you know, prescribed burning and the amount of money we're throwing towards it and doing preventative treatments in that regard, we're not putting enough money into it. And if we put the investment into it, then we can really get uh, a better return uh, in terms of what our, our forest health is, what our landscape health is and our health as well. And, you know, you add it all up and it's very expensive and we have the ability to make a change that we should be making that change now. Pyrogeographer Don Hankins of Chico State. And finally tonight, Kim Weir, who you've heard on our airwaves with the program Up the Road, lives in paradise. Her house was one of the few in the ridge that was spared from the fire's wrath. We asked her for her thoughts on these last two years since the town's name became a cruel irony. Everybody in paradise has a campfire story, and they need to tell it. The telling and retelling of our stories is how we're healing how we're knitting our lives and our community back together after that wicked-fast wildfire burned down our town. Early on, telling campfire stories wasn't subtle. We could hardly stop ourselves. Reciting our harrowing experiences 
and hopeful ones, was a deep need. The need to remind ourselves again how we got here, this scary new place, sometimes even prove to ourselves that we were here. On bad days, recent history felt fuzzy and not entirely believable, like bad fiction. So we'd catch up with neighbors at the grocery store and the hardware store. Not much else was open early on, reciting details of personal disasters, reporting new bureaucratic stumbling blocks, sharing hopeful facts, verifying again and again the long and the short of it. My favorite campfire story comes from Art Collier, my now-retired vet. His family's memoir stars, yet again, brave donkey Poppy and her best friend, a goat. Poppy made national news a decade ago when she saved her friend Buttermilk from the jaws of a mountain lion. She raised such a ruckus, braying and screaming, kicking the stuff out of that wildcat. In the middle of the night, everyone came running, just in time to see the stunned cat let go of Buttermilk's bloodied head and run off. Famous also for winning the Gold Nugget Day's Donkey Derby for five years running, Poppy rescued Buttermilk again during the campfire. She led Buttermilk, the family pig, Kevin Bacon, and a second goat away from the barn, a death trap, into the open and then down to the creek, saving everybody's bacon. What might have been livestock tragedy ended in awe almost five months later when increasingly chubby Buttermilk gave birth to two kids. The babies were all the more miraculous when you consider that Buttermilk was elderly, more than 100 in human years. The campfire story I don't like is the morality tale pointing to this and other historic gold rush towns as a warning for those who prefer foothill living, suggesting that we should scurry back to cities due to wildfire danger because of overgrown forests and changing climate patterns, and that taxpayers shouldn't pay the freight or increased insurance costs for our wildfire folly. Yes, we must make our homes and communities more fire safe. Many of us are busy doing just that, spending both time and money. And yes, we need to quickly reduce fuel loads in our forests. But the rest of the truth is, fire is perfectly natural in California. Native trees and plants have evolved to tolerate, if not benefit from, fire. And people have always lived here, intentionally using fire as a land management tool. Now, the entire state is threatened by megafire, a new phenomenon related to, but not entirely explained by, poor forestry practices and a changing climate. This summer storm of massive lightning-caused fires delivered that message and threat to the doorsteps of countless communities. Natural communities, too, are threatened by these new, fierce, fast-moving fires because repeated wildfire that burns too hot can wipe out plant and animal life that would otherwise thrive, supporting ecological stability, as it has for millennia. The campfire story continues, fortunately. We're revising the town's tale. My hope is that Future Paradise becomes an example of and a lasting parable about wise living, how to live safely with wildfire and with nature.
and SBR's Kim Weir. And that's our special coverage of the second anniversary of the campfire. We welcome your comments at 433-9216 or our website, mynspr.org. This program was produced by Tess Digland, Andre Bayek, Phil Wilkie, and me, Matt Fiddler. Thanks for listening to NSPR News.